This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 271 of Hibbly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we have a very cool show set up tonight, and we've got a special guest, an author, Mark Hartsman from Chasing Ghost. He's a new book that just uh, actually comes out in two days. So mm-hmm. this is coming out right before it comes out. What a fun interview he was. He was awesome. <laughs> Good. So, uh, anyways, I'll, like always, we want to start off, I think, on all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you men, women, and service animals. We appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for keeping our country safe. Um, Continue prayers for you guys that you guys will all get home soon to be with your families. We love you all. As usual... We want to immediately talk uh, talk to you about mental health, mental health awareness. We want to make sure that everybody is aware that no matter what you are thinking about depression, uh, what you're thinking about your well-being or your self-confidence, any of that stuff, we need to make sure that people realize that depression is a horrible disease and it will make you think things that aren't necessarily true. And this has really become evident uh, over last week or so. We've gotten a couple of different messages about people who've taken their own life and it always leaves the question, why? And I don't really have an answer other than the fact of when you're in that situation to where you hurt so bad that you tell yourself that you're a burden. You tell yourself that uh, people don't want you around. You tell yourself that people will be better off without you. And you make yourself believe that to the point to where you just feel like that you're doing everybody a favor by not being here anymore. And that's if you ever start feeling that way, Please reach out to somebody because that is not the truth. It will that will never be the truth. So I just really wanted to say that after seeing some of the messages that we've seen this week. Yeah, please reach out to us guys. We're here to listen, to do anything we can to help you guys. Reach out to the group. Um, they're wonderful and we're very proud of our group. Um, if you would rather call the hotline number, it's 1-800-273-8255. You can text at 741-741. Please don't think that's the only way out. It's just please, we beg of you, just call us. Let us try to help you in any way we can. Um, sometimes you just need to talk, and that's what we're here for, because we love y'all. Absolutely. And you mean everything to us, so. We want to say a big thank you to everybody who came out to St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, had and joined us for the Lighthouse investigation and for the live event. It was so much fun meeting so many people that we hadn't met before mm-hmm. and then getting to spend time with some people that we had met before. I know. It was a blast for sure. It was a great, great time. We did a couple of really cool ghost tours and... And they were both very different and very educational and very exciting. We had a blast. Yeah, I want to say a big thank you to Mike Brown from Pleasing Terrors. Mm -hmm. We went on his ghost tour in Charleston, South Carolina. It was fantastic. If you get a chance, you'll want to do that. And then we also got to, the night before, got to go out with with, uh, Nicholas McGurr, who's been on the show. And he also led the investigation Mm -hmm. in St. Augustine. We went on his uh, Stories in the Cemetery tour, and it was fantastic in a completely different way. Yeah. Definitely. So, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Charleston was a great city. He was glad to go there. St. Augustine was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We just had a blast. And we got to eat at Harry's Seafood, who we had just done the story on. Yep. And it was really it was, good. So if you guys are ever out that way, you need to check it out. What did we have? Like 18 people? Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was great. Good times. All right. So let's get into this story. Tracy, other than the Myrtle's Plantation, most paranormal stories that you're going to hear from people, and even ones we've done on this show, are based out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Just seems to be the, the, the thing. And like I said, even on this show, that that's what we've covered. Now, we did do the Honey Island Swamp Monster and Myrtle's Plantation, but other than that, I think all of them were there. And there are several other stories from the Pelican State. I just wanted to say Pelican State one time. I know you love some Pelicans. I do love some Pelicans. But there are a bunch of other stories, and I wanted to do a few of those tonight. This first story is more of an area than of an actual haunted house, but there used to be a house that stood there. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we're going. So it doesn't mean that just because the house is gone, that the paranormal activity is gone, because that's definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. I want to say that before we get into this first story, I did notice that the paranormal stories from New Orleans usually involve very unscrupulous people like Madame LaLaurie or the Carter Brothers or Zach from Zach and Addie's. A lot of tragedy, a lot of murder, um, stuff like that, you know, torture. Or it goes the complete opposite way, and it's usually a, a voodoo practitioner like Marie Laveau or Julia Brown. But when you... Get to the spirits that are the other parts of Louisiana, especially the plantation spirits, they tend to be a little more gentle. And I, I don't know if that's because they lived in a more hospitable places away from the big city. Um, mm-hmm. not really sure, but that's going to bring us to our, our topic tonight on this first story, which is Mr. Holt. Now, for most of his life, he was a secretary to a gentleman by the name of Frederick Conrad. Now, he was the owner of a place called The Cottage. Okay. It's a very lush plantation, and it sits uh, right in Baton Rouge at Great River Road. So I had to be, I had to say Baton Rouge. <laughs> Baton Rouge. Anyway, in the years before the Civil War, Conrad entertained the likes of Zachary Taylor, the Marquis de Lafayette, Jefferson Davis and Henry Clay, our buddy Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. Frances Parkinson Keys even wrote her book, The River Road, while she was living there. So well, this there place has some history. Heck yeah. 
The plantation burned to the ground in the 1950s. Of course it but, did. <laughs> <laughs> but even before that, there were tales of paranormal activity. And to this day, the grounds that the home once stood on is said to have eerie happenings, and we're going to get into all that. The most well-known stories involve Mr. Holt himself. Now, Holt was born in 1802, and he died in 1880. Now, what makes him so special? Well, as far as I can tell, he's the only Louisiana ghost to have his picture taken 50 years after his death. Oh, nice. That's pretty special. So let's learn a little bit about Mr. Holt. Angus Holt was a traveling teacher, and he came to the cottage and started living there in the 1850s. He would eventually become a private tutor to the Conrad's children. He also became Conrad's personal secretary, which we said earlier. Now, a lot went on at the cottage, and that probably has something to do with the ghostly activity that started there and still there today. For example, on a foggy Sunday morning of February 27, 1859, a huge explosion took place on a steam-powered riverboat named the Princess. Now, we've heard a similar story to this a couple of times. The Princess was at the river near the cottage at the time that this explosion took place. Four boilers exploded on board the ship. This sent the cargo of cotton and passengers' bodies flying oh my in gosh. all directions. That's horrible. The ship was on its way to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Unless the bodies landed on top of the cotton. Then that would have been okay. <laughs> I don't think that happened. <laughs> the ship was... Did I tell you one time that I was allergic to cotton and they gave me some pills, but I didn't know how to get to them? <laughs> You're so silly. <laughs> like I said, the ship was on its way to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Now, Conrad and his slaves helped bring the victim to the shore. The bodies were laid out on sheets on the front lawn of the house. Mm. Seventy passengers died and several more were wounded. Hmm. <laughs> the boat and the cargo were a total loss. Eventually, human error was listed as the reason for the accident. Apparently, the ship's crew had failed to maintain safe boiler pressure. Then came the Civil War. This changed Conrad's life forever. The home that was built in 1824 by Colonel Abner Duncan, as a wedding gift for his daughter Frances, was taken over by the Union Army. The most successful sugar plantation and most beautiful home in all of Baton Rouge area had everything of value stripped from it by the soldiers. Everything from horses to furniture to jewelry and even the children's clothing was taken. They took the Conrad family hostage and were especially cruel to Conrad and Hope. Mm -hmm. After the troops left, the family completely abandoned the house. So after the house was abandoned by the family, the Union took it over again and used it as a hospital for Union soldiers who had contracted yellow fever. Many people died in the house, and they were all buried on the ground. So now you got the 70 people that were pulled ashore mm -hmm. that died on the property. Now you got all these people who, Union soldiers who died. Yeah, a lot of sadness. Fever. 
that were buried. Yeah, a lot of sadness there. Oddly, this may have protected the house from vandals because of fear that they may be the sickness from the yellow fever may actually be lingering in the house. Oh, yeah, definitely. So this kept vandals away. So the house kind of stayed in pretty good shape and didn't right. get wrecked. A few years go by. Frederick Conrad dies in New Orleans. Mr. Holt decides that he's going to move back to the cottage. And by now, he was a completely different man mentally. He became a recluse, and he spent all of his time just trying to fix the place up for the remaining members of the Conrads, who, for the most part, were his students when he was, you know, their tutor. Yeah, yeah. He stopped taking care of himself. He stopped shaving. He would just wander the grounds with a long white beard. And many people would avoid him because they remembered what a great guy he used to be, but now he was a completely different guy. Oh, that's really sad. Neighbors would often drop off food at the house to make sure that he had something to eat. Mm -hmm. Nice. When Holt eventually died, his friends found several boxes, Mm -hmm. okay? These boxes of his belongings had books, clothing, and half-eaten moldy biscuits and other meals. There's a reason for that. But they, they were all inside these trunks. Trunks and boxes. He apparently would walk around the house and just be munching on biscuits and meats and stuff like that. And when he was through, he would just throw them in trunks. That's so weird. Well, like to save them for later? I don't know. I doubt it. It was probably just because he just didn't care. Oh, that's weird behavior. <laughs> He ended up being buried in a local cemetery. Now, as years passed, the cottage again sat empty. Neighbors insisted, though, that the place was haunted. No one would ever go near the house when it was dark outside. Apparitions of Holt's ghost was seen on the grounds. Doors were seen and heard to open and then slam shut. Shadow figures were often seen. But the house would always be found empty when someone would go inspect, mm-hmm. thinking that there was uh, somebody in there, like somebody, a yeah, yeah, like a, or something. Yeah. In 1917, the cottage was the background for the silent movie "Burning the Candle." Oh, that's kind of cool. Yep, that was the first movie ever shot in Baton Rouge. Oh my gosh! In the 1920s, the Conrads started kind of restoring the house. In the 1950s, the house was uh, open to the public and became a museum. But during that time, tales of ghosts were still very widespread. Some of the museum's visitors would report hearing music or singing in the house and the grounds. It was later found out that in the days before the war, Conrad would often have his slaves entertain the family and their guests by singing and playing music. Mm-hmm. Over a hundred years later, that music can still be heard. But other visitors had encountered Angus Holt. On many occasions, there were sightings of an old man mumbling to himself as he walked through the house, tugging at his white beard. In 1940, a reporter from Elks Magazine was on the premises. He was taking some pictures when he accidentally captured what is believed to be the apparition of Angus Holt. He was doing a story on the cottage for the magazine. 
He took a bunch of photos, and when he got the film developed, he noticed an old man looking out the window. He knew that nobody had been there at the time that he took the picture. He showed the photo to the staff, and they identified the man as Mr. Holt. Oh, my gosh. What a great accident to happen. How (laughs) wonderful is that? It's pretty cool. It's very cool. In 1960, the cottage burned completely to the ground. I said earlier it was the 1950s, mm-hmm. but it was 1960s. 60s, so okay. I was off by I was going to say, dude, that burned again? <laughs> the firemen who were there that day had a strange story to tell themselves. So while they were spraying water on the house from the side garden, a man appeared in the upper window. So they were telling the man to jump, but it was like he either didn't notice them or he was ignoring them. One or the other. Mm-hmm. The fire was all around him. Then the roof collapsed and the man disappeared. Once the fire was completely out, they sifted through all the debris looking for the man's remain, but nobody was ever found. So you got a whole fire crew that sees a man there. And to the point where they're telling him to jump. Yeah. And then there really was no man. Oh, gosh. It had to be so terrifying for them as well. Yeah, because I'm sure... Just to know that he's setting up her burning. They're thinking he's setting up her burning alive, you know. Even though the house has been gone for 50 years, there are still sounds of singing and music that are reported in the area. There's also claims of Mr. Holt wandering the grounds, even though the house is gone. There are the pillars of the house still remaining, but the rest of the house is gone. Like, there's just pillars standing there. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. Right. I wonder why they left that like that for. I don't know. I guess maybe because it was a historical landmark mm-hmm. or something. Even though I didn't see that it was made a landmark. But anyway, so the, the pillars are still there. And in this area is your best shot of catching Mr. Holt. We're seeing some shadow figures dancing the fiddle music played by ghostly slaves from a very distant past. I like that. Well, good, because my next thing was, Tracy, did you like that story? But you answered it before. Look at me. Shoo. You may be a medium. (laughs) I have ESPN. (laughs) Now, this is more of fun facts, um, because I decided not to really do any of the, the stories as far as in full detail. But I found through research or just looking at ghostly situations through Louisiana, Four different headless ghosts that haunt three plantations. Well, I ain't got no heads. <laughs> well, and and the fourth, there was a that, that fourth one there. I sound like Norm for a second. Mm. And that, that, that fourth one there. Oh, anyway, R.I.P. The, Norm. The fourth one is actually near a plantation, the Lacey Branch Plantation to be exact. But it didn't actually make it to the plantation. It's just on the road. So this plantation is in the uh, northwest part of Louisiana in a town called, I'll probably screw up a bunch of names going forward because most of them are going to be French, but Natchitoches is, I believe, the name of the city. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Did we see that? Huh? Did we say say something like Natchitoches? Well, when we were going through Mississippi, we we saw uh, something similar, but it wasn't. Oh, This one actually, though, may be the scariest of the four because he likes to suddenly appear from a ditch, scaring motorists and pedestrians late at night. And sometimes he's even on horseback. Nobody has a clue who this apparition is. Mm -hmm. 
They just know that he just... Just appears, Just huh? appears. Now, another unknown headless man is at the Schofield House near Baton Rouge. He's supposedly a little bit nicer. Uh, there was another ghost at Schofield that apparently isn't real nice. It was the former wife of the owner who used to live there, and he hated the or she hated the new wife. So she would rattle pots and pans in the kitchen and slam doors. And once her former husband died, her ghost just disappeared. Just went away, huh? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't no fun to do it anymore. No, apparently not. Now, the other two headless ghosts are at Kenilworth Plantation. And this is just south of of New Orleans. These headless apparitions walk hand in hand through the rooms and the hallways. And sometimes his arm is around her corseted waist. They're always dressed in elegant antebellum clothes. And they never say a word. You know, because, you know, the no head thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Had so, to talk out their butt. So that's why. So you got two headless ghosts walking arm in arm in the same plantation. So kind of cool. What if there was like a uh, like a site back then that said headlessonly.com? dot com? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the Saint Maurice Plantation. It's between Alexandria and Shreveport, and. This story is a little different because it, it, it involves possible buried treasure and a ghost who's guarding it. So one particular spirit hovers above this house, supposedly. It's right over the spot where they say that the treasure's buried. Well, several years ago, the homeowner decided to dig there. He got his metal detector out and he scanned the area and he got a hit. Nice. So he starts digging and there it was, a pickaxe. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's man. what his metal detector had picked up on. <laughs> Bummer. There's also a lady in the attic there. Not a real lady. Nothing special about that. She's mm-hmm. actually a ghost. Mm-hmm. Now, there is something special about that. There is also said to be spirits of a former caretaker and several children on that plantation. So while we're on the subject of hidden treasure... There is another plantation that have ties to hidden treasure. It's called the Old Mercier Plantation. And it's one of the more gruesome tales of the St. Bernard Parish region, which is southeast of New Orleans. This legend goes back over 130 years. It was a very humid summer night. An older African-American woman who was the cook at the plantation nearly collided with a ghost on the front porch. But not just any ghost, it was the ghost of Mr. Mercier himself, the former former owner and builder of the plantation. He called her by her name, Sarah. (laughs) Okay, that would creep me out. He instructed her to meet him behind the milk house that night. He would show her where a fortune in gold was buried. I hope she didn't fall for that old trick. Well, I don't need to tell you that she not only had no intentions on meeting the spirit anywhere... But she started screaming her head off. Everyone in the house came running down to see what the deal was. And she was nervously stuttering and stammering, trying to get her story out. And everybody else was more interested in the thought of the gold that the ghost was speaking about. (laughs) So eventually, the news made it 
to uh, an African-American minister who said that he would volunteer to lead a group to find the treasure behind the milk house. So the group met at 11 p.m., which is the exactly the time that Mr. Mercier had said to meet him behind the milk house. So the minister is back there. He starts to dig. He's got a big group there. He starts digging, and suddenly he drops the shovel and starts screaming in pain, claiming that the devil had grabbed him. Witnesses claim that they could hear a whip snapping at the minister. Oh, my gosh. Huge welts rose on his back. Rips appeared in his shirt, and blood oozed from those rips. Sarah, who pushed, she pushed away all the crowd to get there because she says that she could see Mr. Mercier. He was the one standing there with a whip. Now, nobody else could see this, but she saw it. She said that he was angry that she had disobeyed him and allowed somebody else to hunt for the treasure. The minister eventually died from infections and the wounds that he had suffered that night. What a shame. So, nobody knows what happened to the buried treasure. If there was buried treasure... It was never found, or if it was, nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, surely nobody wanted to do anything with it after he got beaten. Right. All right, so let's move on. Louisiana also has its share of ghosts that don't haunt plantations. So we're going to talk to a couple, about a couple of those okay. non-plantation ghosts. Several ghosts have been spotted on dark, desolate highways and roads. For example, the old Roddy Road in Ascension Parish. It's about 20 miles south of Baton Rouge. It used to be called the Lighted Lane of Gonzales. There used to be dancing lights that were often seen late at night there. Witnesses claimed to see what looked like matches being struck, and then the lights would move along the roadside. The initial legend says that there was a woman that was buried along the roadside there, and there was a light that was placed above her grave, so she wouldn't be in darkness. No, well, that's so nice. That's I the guess. story. Now there's a gentleman by the name Sheriff Hickley Wagspack. That's a really long name. He saw the light in 1951. He said that he saw a yellowish cast, but it didn't create a distinct beam, and that the light wouldn't allow anyone to approach it. I don't know what he means about. Yeah, what's that mean? Well, I think he maybe meant that when he got near it, it probably went away. Or something like that. So most people assume that this is actually swamp gas, which is prevalent in that part of Louisiana. And swamp gas, by the way, is caused by rotting vegetation. And it's sometimes seen as a shimmering light in rural areas. So it's very possible that's what that is. But it's a cool legend. This town I'll probably butcher. Looks like Ponchatoula. There is a haunted gum tree. That's right. I said it. It's said to weep pearl-like tears from a woman who committed suicide under its branches. Wow. Really meant much of a story, but I thought it was cool just because it was so... Yeah. It's a gum tree. There's ghosts of soldiers that are buried in unmarked graves, and these ghosts haunt the woods near Marksville on the East River in east-central Louisiana. There's an old legend that says a Civil War battle was actually fought on the ro- on this road near the woods, and the dead were buried in the trenches. 
and it said at night that the decapitated men still marched the property. Why you want to watch with, march with no head? I don't get it. They're probably all over the place. They're probably not in unison. I mean, and, and you, you know, because they can't see to stay in straight lines and stuff. Their drill instructor's probably pissed. <laughs> so while we're on the subject of woods, there is an avenue of oak trees leading to Parlang Plantation. And this is in Pointe Coupe Parish. It's the setting for our last story. Parlang was actually built by Marquis Vincent de Ternant of Donsville sur Moise, France. And I probably butchered every bit of that. But the French monarchs gave him this land. His son, Claude, had four children with his second wife here. Her name was Virginia. And one of their daughters was a beautiful girl by the name of Julie. But she supposedly went haywire on her wedding night. As hundreds of guests looked on, she started screaming and hysterically ran down the Oak Valley. Her distraught husband ran right after her. She collapsed and died several feet from the house. And her crying ghost can be seen on that exact same path on moonlight nights, even still today. She apparently doesn't know how this wedding thing works. <laughs> yeah, you get you go crazy like that after like the first year. Yeah. So she should gave it a little bit more time. So crazy. All right, so we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit about some upcoming events, what's going on, and then we're going to hear Mark Hartsman about his new book, Chasing Ghosts. He's got a bunch of cool stories. You're going to like this one. This was this was one that was like even I, I was looking forward to it, but it was even way more entertaining when we did it, and I could have talked to him for another hour. No, oh, that's He's awesome. He's a super fun guy. Oh, good. So. All right, Tracy, so we do have still a couple of events left this year. Mm -hmm. Just a reminder that we did cancel the Galveston show. There is no Galveston show. But we still have some tickets left for Dallas. That's us and Leslie Fear. Uh, Tim Mullins is going to be there and a couple of other of our friends. So it's going to be very fun. Looking forward to it. Uh, that is less than a month away. It so is. That's at Outlaws Barbecue. There are still tickets available HillbillyHorrorStories.com, go get it, and we're going to make everything as COVID-safe as possible and all that stuff, social distancing, all that will be done there. Sounds so, good. If that's a concern, that's done. Now, a couple of days before that, we have our Memphis little private dinner. There are still some tickets available for that. So same thing, HillbillyHorrorStories.com. And at the end of the month, our last event, October 24th, is Bobby Mackey's. And uh, that one comes with a tour that's inside Bobby Mackey's. That's on a Sunday and we still have a handful of tickets left for that one. So that one always sells out, so go ahead and snag that one. Yeah, sounds good. Can't wait for it. Tracy, what do we got over there? We have Hershey 5609, Walker Wifey, Mojo Lobster, Karen Scholl, Jason B., Sweet Brown-Eyed Girl 414, Come Mom 5, Gwenna L., and we have Todd, Sean, and Nate from Middle Aged and Creeped Out Podcast. They gave us a really nice review. Thank you guys so much. You all gave us some really nice reviews. Everybody did, and we appreciate y'all so much. And I want to say, we had like three in a row that all mentioned the UF Only episode. Mm -hmm. So 
I think I think you guys are probably like me because almost everybody mentioned they really and we've gotten private messages saying we hey I really don't get into the UFO episodes but I really kind of like this mm-hmm. one and I think it's because we're keeping it short and to the point I think right. I think if it was thirty minute episode some of some of you who don't really get into the UFO episodes wouldn't like it uh, just because it's too long but because they're only eight or nine minutes and straight to the point I think that's we found a sweet spot to kind of keep a lot of people interested yeah and I hope you guys enjoy that. Um, as far as Patreons, we have Kimberly, Augusto Caesar Hunt, Tanya Jones, Daniel LaForest, Vanessa and Jerry, and I'm going to say your name wrong. I know I am. M-A-C-I-A-S. Moshes, you think? I would say Moshes. Okay. Uh, Mandy Hill, Stacey Garner, Tammy Maynard, Gail Frederick, and Donna Shankweiler, thank you guys so much for your support. We appreciate you guys so very, very much. And we appreciate that you take the time to write those reviews as well. It means everything to us. Uh, we did have a birthday for, we'd like to say a happy birthday to Jurgen Junko. It was last Thursday, I believe. Big old five o. Yeah. Yo, yo. Happy birthday, brother. Happy birthday, sweetheart. Um, hope you had an, an enjoyable day. Um, we got to have lunch with a couple of good friends and listeners of the show. Yep, Russ Jen, and Jen. Russ and Jen Casto. And that was a lot of fun. So it was always good to see them. And also, we did an interview with Pursuit of the Paranormal with Greg and Ash. You guys need to check them out. They are awesome. Yes, guys. Go. That, that episode, I think, is coming out tomorrow. But they have a really fun uh, podcast there in Great Britain, so it's mm-hmm. a British podcast. Two different, completely different British accents because oh, yeah. one lives on one part of the country Isn't and the other the one lives on the thing? other end of the country. Yeah. So it's just like here if you had, you know, a country accent and then a New York accent. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when me and Amanda did a show. Oh, yeah. So it's like, it's like that type of deal, but really cool show. They've been doing this for almost a year, getting ready to have their year anniversary mm-hmm. and go listen to them. Let's get, let's get them a bunch of listens this week. And uh, I think you guys are, are really like it anyway. It's a fun, it's a fun show. Yeah, please give Melissa a very nice, very nice gentleman. All right, let's listen to this episode with Mark Hartsman. You guys are really going to like this. Hey guys, I'm excited to have our next guest on. I've got author Mark Hartsman and Mark. We we set this thing up a couple of months ago mainly because you've got a new book that's getting ready to come out. It's going to be out at the end of this month, and it's called Chasing Ghost. I've got the book here. I've thumbed through it a little bit. I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, but it's a really well put together book. I mean, it looks fantastic. It's got a lot of pictures and stuff, which is always big for me because sometimes the pictures do tell a thousand words. And I just think it's really enjoyable. And, you know, I've had a chance to see you before on some stuff. That's why I was excited when the opportunity to get you on the show uh, presented itself because you've been on CNN, uh, MSNBC, Ripley's Radio. But my favorite, though, is Mysteries at the Museum on the Travel Channel. Absolutely love that show. It's one of the best shows out there. And uh, when I found out that you were on there, I was that that there was enough for me to say, I got to talk to Mark. So thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was a fun show to do, talking about Missile Mail, which is a random, weird piece of history. <laughs> <laughs> that show's got all kinds of random stuff. I, I, what I like about it 
is the fact that you get a little bit of everything with every episode. There's usually a little bit of paranormal. There's usually a little bit of war history or a little bit. So there's a, there's a little bit of everything on every episode. So it's, it kind of stretches against all genres. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, before we get into this upcoming book, let's talk about one of your books from the past. Cause I thought it was funny. You've got a book out about 101 genuinely bizarre items for sale on eBay. Tell me a little bit about that book and what inspired you to write that. <laughs> yeah, that was my first book called Found on eBay. And I guess what inspired me to, to write that was I, was, I started buying uh, sideshow uh, photographs from you know CDVs, uh, cabinet cards from the late 1800s of sideshow performers. And I started thinking like, Oh, I wonder if this is kind of a strange thing to be, you know, to be buying, you know, pictures of conjoined twins and this sort of thing. Um, but then I thought, no, I love this stuff. It's not weird. It's, this is, this is cool. This is great. <laughs> but then I thought, you know, I bet there's a bunch of stuff that everyone would agree is really, truly weird, like objectively weird. So I started just Googling like strange search terms to see what I could find. And, and I found plenty. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I think everyone would agree is pretty bizarre. Uh, one of my favorites was, it was called a it was a deer poop paperweight that was called a pooper weight, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> nice. And not only is like the object weird, but the story, like when you imagine the fact that someone made this thing, that there was work put into it, which involves collecting animal droppings and then putting them into like a crystal snow, uh, not snow globe, but like paperweight type of thing and decorating it with like little leaves and snowflake, you know, fake snowflake type things. And then, you know, putting it together. Um, just a strange little thing. So what I would do is I'd find these odd items and then I would write the sellers really weird questions, like just as weird as the stuff they were selling. <laughs> and then they would write me back and like nothing phased them because they were trying to make a sale. So they would be like, oh, that's a great idea. Like I, someone was selling a hornet's nest, um, which is actually quite beautiful. And I asked, I said that I had like a nephew who had a birthday party coming up and I was wondering if I could turn it into a pinata and I want to make sure there were no more hornets left in it. And the guy's like, no, there's definitely no hornets left in it. And that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about making it into a pinata. So, you know, it's all these like crazy <laughs> wacky things. So the book just features, you know, features photos of all these different objects and the, the sales data, you know, how many bidders, what was the starting price, what was the final price, description, and then our correspondence back and forth. So, yeah, that, that's kind of, you know, just my own collection, my own collecting and collecting odd things kind of led to trying to find all sorts of weird things that people might be selling and buying. Now, this book is going to be, is this going to be your fifth book, sixth book? Uh, seventh book. Seventh book. And you've kind of got a niche for, you know, the odd, I will say. That's kind of the, everything you, all your books all have a tendency to, to, you know, be a little different than what's out there. What is it about those types of topics that really interest you the most? Is it just the fact that just there's not a lot out there for these types of topics and there's a good market for it, I would think? Yeah, I, I guess I just, I really love these stories and I love being able to share these weird stories I dig up um, or, you know, make make things that might be a little obscure, not as obscure to people anymore, if it can be, you know, have more availability and accessibility out there. I mean, what, I've just always loved this stuff since I was a kid. You know, when I, when I was growing up, I used to watch Ripley's Believe It or Not on TV all the time. And I would read the Guinness book, I, you know, when they were the the thick paper, mm -hmm. paper uh, black and white books. Um and I love like just like the first 20 pages with the human oddities, like the world's tallest man, Robert Wadlow, who was eight foot 11 and a half. Like that just fascinated me that the human body could grow to these extremes, you know, and people could still function and, you know, he could 
he was just a very large person or the, the tiny people, um, all sorts of just different shapes and sizes. I, I just found that fascinating. That, that kind of took me on that path to my book, American Sideshow. Um, and that's just kind of expanded into all different sorts of you know worlds of oddities. Uh, my last book uh, was also through quirk books like Chasing Ghosts was called The Big Book of Mars. And although that doesn't sound weird on the surface, it's packed with weird stories about like people's beliefs in intelligent life on Mars, you know, a hundred years ago in the late 1800s and, you know, top scientists all over the, the world believing that we had, uh, we were trying to be contacted by Martians or how could we contact Martians and how dumb were we for not being able to receive their, their messages. And these were people like from Harvard, you know, and Nikola Tesla, the smartest guy, you know, maybe who's ever right. lived. So, uh, you know, all these things kind of make you start to realize why in 1938, when Orson Welles had his uh, War of the Worlds um, broadcast, why people freaked out and panicked because they'd been told that Martians <laughs> might be coming any day now for decades by smart people, New York Times and all these different publications. So, um, yeah, so I, I just I just love these weird stories, you know, just finding these oddities and being able to share them with people. I, I enjoy that. And so that's there's plenty of that in Chasing Ghosts for sure. So let's talk about Chasing Ghosts. It comes out, uh, what's the exact date of this? I know it's at the end of this month. Yeah, September 28th, coming up. Okay, that's exactly what I was thinking. Now, tell me what inspired you to write this book, because it does seem to be a little bit different than some of the other stuff you've done. Do you have an interest in the paranormal before this book, or, or is this something that's fairly new to you? Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've always kind of been fascinated by, I love the paranormal, but I really just this question of like, is there anything after death? You know, does, can we live on, you know, does the soul have another life after, you know, we die? I've always been worried like, Oh, if we, when we die and we're buried six feet underground, like what if that's the wrong thing to do? And we're, we're trapped for eternity in this dark <laughs> box and that's horrifying and no one can know. And, you know, all of humanity has been trapped. I kind of got into this, actually this theme in one of my other books, the uh, embalmed head of Oliver Cromwell, a memoir, but um, that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> but so I've always kind of liked it, but then it, over the past several years, I've just, I've really gotten into uh, spiritualism, the, you know, Victorian era spiritualism, the late 1800s and early 1900s when people kind of like what I was just saying about the Martians, when people really believed that there was intelligent life on Mars and, you know, what a time to be alive that must've been when we really thought that we had planetary neighbors that could communicate with us. And at the same time, you had all these people really believing that we could communicate with the dead. And they were convinced that there was, you know, there was no question that there was life after death and millions of people believed that we could communicate with them. And what a time that must've been to think like, Hey, once I pass on, I'm not dead. I'm just passing on to another plane and, you know, I can be in touch with you. And, um, you know, you had all these, these mediums who were at work and just doing like really phenomenal things, you know, holding these different kinds of seances and producing amazing manifestations that people believed, you know, were convinced were real. Um, and how they were doing these things is just amazing. I mean, so just assume that, you know, you might, you might think that some of these people were real. Maybe there were a few people with genuine abilities. That's quite possible. Um, I don't want to, to judge for sure one way or the other, but certainly many of them were exposed. And even though they may have not been real, they may have been frauds, the fact that they were able to do these, these kinds of stunts and tricks is really remarkable and, and just makes for amazing stories. I mean, a lot of these people were, were like housewives who at that time, you know, women didn't have the job opportunities in the late 1800s and early 1900s that they have now. Um, and here was this new job opportunity, medium, could, you know, 
communicated with the dead. I mean, what's cooler than that? What's more powerful than that? Right. And then they were learning all these amazing things that they could do to, you know, like I said, create these manifestations, table levitations, uh, you know, noises, voices appearing, things flying across the room, objects appearing out of nowhere, you know, spectral faces appearing. It's basically like a magic show. But but magicians, you know, they they were always, you know, they were mentored by other magicians and they had props and they had help and they trained for years. And like I said, these were housewives who were figuring this stuff out and, you know, usually exposed by magicians, but sometimes being, you know, stumping magicians. So it's, I just found that whole era fascinating. And that's kind of what really got me into the subject matter. And of course, expands to early cultures and, and more uh, modern times in the book. It covers, it covers a pretty large spectrum. Now, the thing about the, the spiritualism movement, I think that it was great that there were so many people back then that had hope. And I think that's, uh, you know, when that kind of I think when like the Fox sisters and stuff started getting exposed and some of the others, it made people lose hope really quick. And I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, anything that gives you hope and gives you a reason to to get on with your day and just to feel like it's it's you're fine in the uh, in the long run. I'm 100 percent for it. And uh <laughs> I think that a lot of that hope went away when some of these people started getting exposed. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, that word to me is very key. I feel like the reason people believed in ghosts for pretty much the entirety of human history is because of hope, just that hope again, that there's something more uh, to this life of ours. Right. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting is when the Fox sisters, they, they exposed themselves, you know, it was, Right. <laughs> One of the Fox sisters just went on stage at a, a, a convention, you know, for a spirituals convention said, Hey, look, I've been, when I was a kid, I was doing this thing with my knees and my joint, you know, my <laughs> knuckles and toes and here I'm going to do it right now with my toe knuckles. And she like demonstrated it. She's like, sorry guys, that's what I was doing. You know, sorry about that, but uh, it wasn't real. And, and no people didn't believe her. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> right. no, now you're just trying to like flip the switch and like capitalize on not being a spiritualist, but we know you're a spiritualist. You're definitely a medium. So, I mean, certainly some people may have lost hope, but so many people refuse to believe it, which may have been because they want to cling to that hope. Right. You know, maybe they were like, I'm not giving up on this thing yet. It's interesting too, just how quickly mediumships and spiritualism spread. I mean, the Fox sisters started in 1848 and they were just young girls, you know, like, their ages vary so much by by different sources, like 10, 12, 11, 13, 9, 11, you know, basically that that age range. Um, and it just spread like wildfire. I mean, within you know, a few years, you had millions of spiritualists across the country and across the pond over in Europe. And they were kind of toured around by their older sister, who was about 20 years older, Leia Fox, who was really like the, you know, their their showman, your showwoman, <laughs> you know, touring them all over the country and um, also in England as well. She was the Chris Jenner of her time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> All right. So I, I, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a loaded question. But you said that, you know, you always wondered, is there something after this life? And you've done a lot of research, obviously, for this book, because this book has a ton of stories in it. So you've you've been all over the map when it comes to paranormal and spiritualism in this book. What did you come up with? <laughs> well, it's, that's a good question. And I, I, you know, there's no, 
I, I don't have a definitive answer. I think anyone who can tell you that there's a, an answer uh, is, you know, they're lying because no one knows for sure. That's just, that's the only thing we know is that we don't know. But, um, you know, I, I think I, I became a little bit more convinced than I was beforehand that there's something. And it's just such a tough thing to tell because there's so many stories where you see how things were exposed, but then there's all these great examples where you can't explain something. Um, and in, in some cases, like I mentioned before, like magicians are exposing people. And of course, Houdini was a big uh, advocate of exposing frauds and was convinced that if anyone could come back and, and communicate from the dead, he would do it. You know, And of course, he, he, there was a story about him having like a code word that he would give to his wife if they held seances and that that never came through, although people said that they got it, but that was never confirmed by her. And you kind of wish like, ah, I wish that happened. I wish like Houdini would have, you know, answered this for us. He was the guy who could do it. But then you had just have all these interesting uses of technology. <clears throat> you know, people have been using technology for, I mean, uh, you know, early uses in the 1800s, like when the camera was new and you had William Mumler of Boston was this first spirit photographer. And they, people felt like, oh my gosh, this camera, this new invention, it, it can see things that I can't see and detect things we can't see. It's capturing spirits. So here's new proof and here's this wondrous new invention. And, you know, why, why not believe something like that? If you're already believing this is a possibility and you have new technology, it seems possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course, that was, you know, uh, he was not doing this for real, but um, it was an interesting thought. But then you, you fast forward, let's just fast forward a little bit to more modern times. And you have instances of technology being able to show um, how things that might seem paranormal might not be paranormal. They might be perfectly explainable by, you know, physics in some way or another. That's not to say every instance is, but it's interesting to see where things can be explained. Like one example in the book I thought was really interesting was a guy named Vic Tandy in England who was, um, uh, you know, a scientist who was working, this was like the late seventies, early eighties, was working like in a warehouse one night and he was told that this place was haunted. So like it had a history of people having experiences there. And, and he, this is sort of an odd little quirk to the story, but he, he was a fencer. Like he, he was, you know, in the fencing. And so he had a tournament like the next day or something or some competition. So he brought his fencing foil to work one night and he had it laying there on the counter or whatever. And he walks away, comes back and the foil is sort of shaking back and forth kind of rapidly. He's like, well, that's, that's weird. And he starts seeing like shadowy figures out the corner of his eye. And he's like, well, why is my foil shaking? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> so rather than just saying like, oh, there's a ghost like shaking my my uh, foil or you know something like that, he puts a little science to it. And he discovers that there's a, a frequency coming from this industrial size fan that was in this uh, warehouse. That was, uh, it's called infrasound and it's like 18.9 Hertz. And we don't detect this on our own. We don't hear this, um, but, but our body reacts to it in a really interesting way. So it causes like the eyeball to vibrate a little bit. Um, and it causes you to feel like fear. Like it just causes these emotions within you, even though you don't realize it's happening, it's causing it. Um, and so, so he realizes that this is what's going on there. And then he takes some tools and some, you know, measurement tools and such to uh, some other places considered haunted. Like there was a, like a 14th century cathedral, not far from where he was in England that was supposed to be haunted in the cellar. He takes it down to the cellar and sure enough, he finds infrasound down there as well. Finds it in narrow hallways, you know, places that are typically kind of like tropes of haunted houses and things. 
And here's this interesting explanation that might account for some cases. Obviously, that's not all paranormal experiences. So, he, And he admitted, he's like, this is just one thing I'm finding. But that was interesting to see. Like, okay, so here's a scientific explanation for something. And then you have that with like, uh, you know, a lot of you know, ghost hunters will go around with their EMF readers looking for mm-hmm. electromagnetic fields. And, and a lot of times what those electromagnetic fields find are like infrasound, a, a real physical reason for a paranormal experience. So just like uh, EMFs that might be caused by machinery, in a certain area might cause you to have a feeling that you're uh, having an experience. So like one of the um, parapsychologists I spoke with is a guy in New York named Dan Sergis. He was telling me a story about investigating a story uh, in, I think, downtown Manhattan. And it was a woman who contacted him saying, you know, my, my boyfriend is having all these paranormal experiences in our apartment. You know, can you come check it out? He's like every night in bed, he's having these horrible feelings and, you know, believes he's seen things or hearing things just these, you know, different kinds of um, experiences. So he goes and checks it out. And with his EMF reader, he detects that on his side of the bed only, it's like off the charts, like crazy EMF readings off the charts. And so behind his bed, there's like an elevator bank or something is right there. Like all this machinery happens to be like just opposite his side of the bed only. So when they move the bed to like a different spot in the room, he was fine. (laughs) It all went away. So it's just interesting to see how that works. There's another really interesting case in the book from, I believe it was from 1912. It was a family had moved into a house and had all the classic like haunted house tropes. You know, they heard noises, they saw shadowy figures, they heard rappings, um, you know, they felt, they felt things like, you know, brush against them or whatever it might be. Uh, just all these different things that are classic haunted house type stories. And a relative came over one day and said, you know, and by the way, so I said that said it was 1912. So electricity is still kind of in its infancy. Um, and this house was lit by gas, by gas lamps still. So not uh, no electric lights in the house yet. So the relative said, you know, uh, he, he knew some other people that had a sort of similar thing and they had, I think their oven checked out or something like that and found that there was a carbon monoxide problem and that solved it when they fixed it. So they had that checked out and the gas lamps were also emitting some carbon monoxide, not enough to kill them, obviously, but enough to mess with them. And so carbon monoxide, if it's not enough to kill you, it can cause these kinds of paranormal experiences, these hallucinations and such. So when they fixed that, it all went away and they were fine. So you have these interesting things. So that said, I'm, I'm giving you a long answer. Sorry, but those are interesting <laughs> stories about how like technology can show that maybe an experience isn't really paranormal, but just appears that way. But then on the other hand, there's these great stories. And actually, I started alluding to this before we uh, started recording, but uh, one of the parapsychologists I spoke with, who was really you know wonderful and helpful, his name is Lloyd Auerbach. He was telling me a story about a friend of his, uh, a writer, an aviator, the guy who came up with the $6 million man. He, uh, he had passed away and you know they'd had conversations about this topic of course because lloyd is you know this is what he does his profession and he said he was driving to the airport in a fairly new car still had kind of new car smell this was i think out and out on the west coast i think heading to portland if i remember correctly and he starts smelling cigar smoke in the car and it was the cigar smoke that his friend smoked like this friend smoked cigars and this was like his brand and he definitely recognized this as being his brand and he had just passed away you know maybe I, I think a week or two before, not immediate, like usually these sort of near, uh, after death experiences happen to be bedside death experiences. So, so that was odd to him. Right. And so he then gets a call from a friend of his who's over like on the West coast 
and finds out that his friend, or I think his friend tells him the same story. And he's like, that just happened to me too. It happened to his friend like 10 minutes later. And then the friend says a, a third friend, again, all these guys are connected. A third friend had the same experience as well within 10 minutes of the two of them. And so something like that happens, like this weird olfactory experience or, or sensation uh, that relates to someone that you know. And that's a hard one to explain. Like that one, I don't know. Like, I don't know where science has an answer for something like that. Um, so that's what's kind of fun about this is like, okay, science might have some answers, but there's still left, so much left to wonder. Uh, and I, I love that sort of mystery of the whole thing. Yeah, we did a story uh, probably about three months ago. I, uh, we do some shorter stories called Hillbilly Dead Time Stories. And the story that I did was very similar to what you just described. It was a woman whose uh, husband had passed away a week or so earlier, but she experienced his cologne smell and everything in the car. And then when she talked to his mother, she found out that the mother and his sister all had the similar experience within a day or so of each other. And none of them had told each other about it. Wow. But it was, so, yeah, very similar situation, except this time it was his cologne. Yeah. rather than the cigar smoke, but three different family members within a day period. Yeah. And it's like a distinct scent that you associate with that person, right? It's, it's <laughs> not like a random smell. It's like, this belongs to that person. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I love that stuff. I know the reason I asked you what you came up with on your research is because what I found after five years of doing this show and anybody that's really put any kind of real research into it, they end up with more questions than they had when, than when they started. So I was kind of curious uh, if you'd uh, had the same experience with, you know, you just kind of started down this rabbit hole and now you got way more questions than when you ever, before you've started your research. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's truth to that. I mean, you find out all these other things going on. I mean, there's some things that happen that people think might be ghosts, might not be ghosts. It might just be coming from the person. Um, usually these are, what parapsychologists would call poltergeist cases. You know, right. usually think of poltergeist as, you know, I mean, the, the term means noisy ghosts. So we think of them as ghosts, you know, being kind of rowdy and rambunctious. And obviously the movie Poltergeist doesn't help um, change no, that, not, not at all. that perception. But but there was a, a really interesting story. Uh, another parapsychologist told me who works at the Ryan Research Center, um, you know, over in, in North Carolina. And uh, he was telling me about a, like a young boy who was, who was causing machinery to go haywire basically like if he walked by a phone the phone would ring printers would start printing or like would break you know tvs would go on and and you know re remotes would you know things would just break down or go you know nuts when he was in its pre in, in their presence which is really weird like what's causing that and and he was causing problems at school you know because he'd mess up computers at school and <laughs> teachers thought he was like screwing with them or something. <laughs> they were like, stop messing with us. He's like, I'm not doing anything. Like this is a <laughs> problem I have. I don't know. So the family had uh, these guys from, from Ryan come and investigate it. And, you know, you, you wonder like, is, is there a logical explanation for this? And basically it comes down to this idea of some kind of uh, psychokinesis, you know, what they call RSPK recurring spontaneous psychokinesis. And he worked with him on some like kind of mindfulness techniques and things like this. And eventually that helped and it went away. Um, but you hear about these other RSPK cases where usually they revolve around teenagers. You might have some, you know, going through puberty at the height of puberty and there's mm -hmm. all those suppressed emotions going on and it manifests and things moving and, and shaking or, you know, things flying across the room. 
And this is how poltergeist cases are often explained by parapsychology. And that's an amazing thing. Like, is this something that, does this really happen? Is this like a real legit thing? Um, is It's not just somehow a hoax in some way. And certainly there are those who believe that they're all hoaxes, but there's so many cases where it seems kind of hard to believe that kids could be causing all these things that be happening on purpose, you know, or, or uh, arranging them on their own. You know, the Enfield case in England's a good one from, mm-hmm. you know, The Conjuring 2 was based on that, if anyone's seen that movie. But, you know, these girls ultimately admitted to maybe faking a few things, but I think a lot of times there's pressure to perform when everyone wants to see what you're doing. That's right. something that mediums, you know, been have claimed to do. But, uh, but these girls, like at the beginning, they had police coming in investigating the house and, you know, the police are seeing chairs flying across the room and dressers flying across the room and, you know, bed shaking and stuff. And they're checking the right. There's no strings pulling it. Like we're not seeing anything that's making this happen. So we don't know how this is happening. So, you know, they call on the society for psychical research to investigate it, but those things are really fascinating. And, and yeah, they raise a lot of questions like, okay, there's, there's more than ghosts. Maybe communications that are happening. Aren't like when you have like a trance medium who's getting information from what you think is the dead, maybe it's not the dead, maybe it's the living, you know? So yeah, lots of, lots of questions come up for sure, but they're all fun, interesting questions. It's funny you bring that up because those are the cases that uh, interest me the most. The ones where you have very credible sources like police officer, firemen uh, that that see stuff. I know there was a famous case, one of the Warrens cases up in uh, 966 Lindley Street where uh, the young girl had uh, they had to police. They had the whole neighborhood was basically blocked off because traffic was so bad because the news was out about what was happening. And police officers actually saw a refrigerator that weighed 400 pounds move and they checked for wires. They checked for everything. And, you know, they saw chairs fly across the room. And uh, that's the case where they actually had a cat that was singing jingle bells and calling the firemen names. But there was so many credible cases. And they even came out and said, hey, it was a hoax just to get the people to quit lining up in front of the house. But then they continued on with the investigation and saying, we know it's not a hoax, but we need to get people, you know, people can't get in the neighborhood. It's a fire hazard, safety issues, ambulances can't get back here. And, you know, so situations like that are incredible. And uh, the Columbus poltergeist, you you had mentioned uh, the Ryan Institute, obviously uh, uh, William G. Roll, who came up with the RSPK, that was his, his terminology. And then, you know, they were involved in, and went up to that case where the young girl had the telephone that supposedly would stretched out on its own. And then they were saying that you know, other people were saying, well, she threw the phone and uh, it wasn't uh, happening on its own. And they tried to send all the news people up there just to watch her. And she's like, same thing you said, like the infield case, when you get all the news and everybody right there, eventually you just want them to get the hell out of there. And if it means doing something just to give them what they want, so they leave, but then that tarnishes the whole reputation of the the case altogether. And so right. it sucks, but it is what it is. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And the Warrens are, I mean, they've got so many interesting cases. Um, I, I had an opportunity to interview Lorraine Warren in um, 2010. I was writing a story for AOL Weird News at that time about the 100th anniversary of the Mark Twain's death. And they were holding a, an event at the Mark Twain house in uh, Connecticut, um, in Hartford, Connecticut. So they were holding like a seance and then Lorraine was leading tours of the house, ghost tours. So I interviewed her in advance 
And at that time, uh, Ed Warren had already passed away. Uh, and she was telling me stories. This was just on a phone call from, I remember from my office where I worked and I, she had the hairs on my arm just raising. She was freaking me out with these stories. She was telling me <laughs> basically about how her husband was, you know, coming back and communicating with her. I think she said that she went to their favorite diner and, uh, and there was a tune he used to whistle and she heard the whistling while she was at this diner. I just, everything she was saying was just like, wow, this, this is crazy. <laughs> Has this really happened? So, um, yeah, that definitely leaves a lot to wonder. And it just makes you, you know, just because we, we don't, we can't do these things ourselves. Does that mean that no one can? And does it not mean that there's more to the human brain than, than we're aware of? You know, I mean, we, we don't use our whole brain. Maybe some people have tapped in the parts of it that most of us haven't yet. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, I think it's also as to how open you are too, I believe, because, you know, children have a tendency to see things when they're little before they should, you know, before they've really been, uh, I guess, told that, Hey, this isn't real. You can't see this. They they get programmed as they get older. And, you know, I think kids four five, six years old, I think a lot of these imaginary friends aren't necessarily imaginary friends. I think they are seeing things because they're open. And as they get seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, they're told they don't exist a thousand times. Some of that goes away. You're right. And so many stories are around young kids having these experiences. It was one really interesting thing in terms of my process of writing the book and just my experience of writing it is I would, I would just tell friends and like coworkers, like, Oh, you know, work on this book and they'd ask questions and they, so many of them would just tell me stories. And they were often stories like you were just describing. Uh, one core coworker was telling me about uh, the fact that she she's experienced different things like moving into new homes. She'll feel energies of like if something bad's happened there or not. And I think her mother had a story where she had experienced something in their home, seeing someone like in a room in the attic or something like that. And, and I think kind of like you said, like sort of like put it out of their, their mind after a while, but then it was like 30 years later, she and her sister were talking about it. And the sister said, Oh my God, I had the same experiences at that house. Like the two of them realized all they didn't talk about it to each other, but then realized yep. they were having the same experiences. And yeah, you hear a lot of these stories about young kids just seeing things or like one of our friends was saying how her, they have two daughters and one of the daughters would complain about seeing, you know, a, a person climbing up the stairs and coming into her room and was describing this, this person, uh, some woman. And then when they had another baby, the baby, they would see that baby like lying in the crib, infant still. They'd see her eyes tracking across the room as if she was seeing something going by when there was nothing there. And then the other daughter, the older one, was uh, was saying, I'm seeing her again, which is interesting. Like a baby is having this, you know, a reaction to it, which is, which is really fascinating. And then they find out, so they start looking into the previous owners of the house and they found out that there was uh, a woman there who had lost two children in the house. Um, so you wonder, like, is this like the ghost spirit of this woman sort of wanting to look after the two young children and the the mother of these two girls, you know, was trying to get rid of this ghost and said, listen, I understand you're trying to help, but I've got control of this. I've got it. It's okay. You can leave, you know, and I think things eventually went away. Almost like I have to communicate with this ghost and say, uh, thank you, but your help is not needed here. You can, you can go on, you know. Uh, it's so there's there's all these interesting unexplained cases and yeah so many of them with children it's it's very interesting. One of the things that I can tell you it totally changed uh, on my viewpoints from doing all the research that I've done on the show is on 
I'm not going to say life after death. I always believe that, but reincarnation has really become in my forefront because I, I grew up Catholic. You know, that was just something that, you know, reincarnation is not something that happens. You know, it's just, it's just not something that's part of the belief system. As I've started doing this show, you know, I, I, I've seen so many cases of past lives and reincarnation that I have no answers for other than to say, I think this happened. Yeah. And it, it blows my mind. That's probably the one takeaway I've got out of everything that I've went into. Cause I always come in with an open mind, but I did not believe in reincarnation until I've seen so many stories stuck in front of my face with verification, mind you, that just, it's like, there's no, in my mind, there's no way this cannot be real. I, I agree. I, I kind of feel like this might be a topic for a future book for me. <laughs> I find it fascinating too. And I've been reading more about lately. I just wrote an article recently for a site called uh, all that's interesting.com about Shanti Devi. Are you familiar with her story? No, that's one I'm not familiar with, at least not by name. I might want you to get into it. So Shanti Devi was a girl in India and I believe it was like early 1920s. And so young girl and keep in mind, early 1920s in India. So there's no, not like you got lots of phones or certainly no <laughs> internet, <laughs> no, no social Google. media, nothing, you know, it's pretty remote. Uh, um, and, and not a lot of technology yet. So as a very young girl, she starts describing this past life of hers. And she's talking about her former husband and the fact that she died shortly after giving birth. And she's got all these details. And this is like a really young kid. Like uh, I forgot the exact ages at this point, like four or five. I mean, young. And at first it's like, oh, she's just got an imagination. But the details are getting like too bizarre to be just a kid with a you know vivid imagination. So they start looking into it. And uh, eventually they, I think through some connections to the town that this husband lived in, which was like a, a village, like hundreds of miles away. So again, the huge distance between where she is and where she claimed to have been before. Um, they arrange a trip to go there. And she, along with a crew of like eight investigators, like Gandhi was fascinated by this case. You know, it was like, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> so all these investigators go with her and she basically leads the way. Like she's steering the... Uh, whoever is you know, taking them and uh, the vehicle to the address that she says she lived at. And so she steers them there through the streets and she's recognizing everything. And she gets to a house and she said, oh, this house used to be like yellow or something when I lived here, but it's not anymore. And they find out that, yes, the person there says it, it did used to be yellow. We painted it <laughs> like crazy stuff like that. So she meets the guy that she was married to. She shares all these details about his life. They're correct. He acknowledges them all, um, which is just amazing. She goes in the house. She said, oh, I had hid money under the floorboard or something. She's looking for it and she's going through everything. And he's like, all right, I, I actually, I found it. It was there, but I took it out a while ago or something. Like all these crazy details that she nailed all of them. You know, she knew all this stuff. And I just, there's like no real explanation as to how she could have known this. And no one said like, Oh, here's how it happened. Like, there's no real resolution to it other than this happened to this woman. Um, so yeah, it just it just leaves you thinking. Like, I don't, I don't know. It seems like she re was reincarnated, <laughs> just like she said. Right. Yeah. And and the thing of it is, there's literally 25 stories that I've read that are very similar to that. That there, there's just no explanation, and they always tend to know details that nobody else, like the like the little boy in. Uh, I believe it might have been Pakistan or India, the one that uh, 
he had said that he was murdered and was was killed with an axe in the head and he had the birthmark. And then uh, he was like three or four and he was able to take them to a town over, show them where the body was buried. They were able to dig up, found him and the, the axe. He told them who killed him. And they went to that guy's house and that guy actually confessed to the murder. Wow. And, and there was a guy over there that was a, he was a doctor who was fascinated and, and specialized in past lives. He's the one that actually took the kid with the, with his uh, parents and went to the next town over and, and divulged all this. But they say that, that uh, once you get six, seven, eight years old, these, these children with the past life memories, those memories start going away. So you almost have to figure it out in the, in the early ages, but there's the uh, the other young lady who thinks she's reincarnation of Anne Frank, uh, but knew exactly where the building was, where they they went to the Anne Frank Museum. And she was like, oh, there used to be stairs here. And then they found out, yeah, there did used to be stairs there. And she knew everything about the place. She knew how to get there, even though she'd never been in that country. And when they took her there, she knew where to get off, said it's right up the road. And this is pre-Google. I mean, this is like the 60s, I think. But she was able to get off, take them right to where the house was without maps or anything in a city she had never been in before. And it was just uh, that's a fascinating story. She's got so many details of Anne Frank's life that was not in the uh, diary of Anne Frank. Wow. And so you're talking like maybe 15, 20 years after her death, potentially. Yes. Yeah. And she was in school and they started reading the, the diary of Anne Frank. And she's like, why do y'all know so much about my life? And they're oh, like, weird. no, this is this is Anne Frank. And she's like, no, that's me. So, it's, yeah, it's a, if that's what you hadn't looked up yet, look that one up. You'll be fascinated by that. Yeah, I will. So, yeah, that's that's cool. The book is called Chasing Ghost. It'll be out September 28th. This is Mark Hartsman, the author. He got several other good books out there. Mark, if they want to find out about the other books you got and keep up with, because uh, I know you got a website and everything. That's that's a cool website. Uh, about weird stuff. So everybody can kind of join in on that. What's the best way to keep up with Mark Hartsman and everything you got going on? Um, yeah, there's a few sites. So there's, there's weirdhistorian.com, which will have stuff about my books, but all other weird stuff. Um, but also there's, uh, for my book stuff, you can go to markhartsmanbooks.com. And Mark is M-A-R-C, uh, Hartsman, H-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, books.com. So you'll see all, all my books there and some articles I've written as well about weird oddities and such. Um, so, so lots of fun stuff there. And yeah, the book's available everywhere from Quirk Books, um, bookstores, if you're going back to bookstores by now, which would be great, or, you know, Amazon, barnesnumble.com, bookshop.org, any, any place you buy books, you'll find it. And of course, we'll share all the links to that when uh, this gets uh, uploaded. So anybody on our website and stuff will be able to go to it as well. Mark, it's been fun, buddy. You got a bunch of great stories and I could have talked to you another three or four hours, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This was great. Thanks for having me on. No problem, buddy. I'll talk to you soon in the future. I'm sure you got more books coming out. Yes, yes. Take care. Let's see. Wasn't that a fun interview? It was great. So, guys, thank you so much for everything you do for us. If we, we, I know we say it a thousand times, but the reality of it is we just really appreciate you guys more yeah, than you'll ever know. We do. We definitely don't want to disappoint. So if anybody has any you know, feedback or something like you'd like to hear that might be different or whatever or something, you know, you might want to hear on the show, please let us know because you guys come first and we want to make sure, you know, that you guys are still enjoying the show because y'all mean that much to us. So 
And and we want to say this again because this has been a long time since we said this. If you have an issue with something we're doing, send us a message. Oh, Don't please leave it do. in a review. Oh. Send us a message so we can, you know, yeah, don't talk tell, about it. We, don't tell never... me to don't tell me to shut my pie hole because that pissed me off. Yeah, we hadn't talked about that one, but I have not, and I have not talked about it, and I don't really want to harp on it because I'm to the point where I'm over it now. But you know, I will not ever say really a bad word about anybody. But that person was a complete asshole. Yeah, I said it. He was an asshole, yeah. and he attacked me personally. But I'm over it now. Because, you know, guy, you guys are so supportive and, and show your love in so many ways. So, you know, but anyway, just please, you know, if y'all have any concerns, issues or whatever, we welcome your opinions. We want you to let us know so we can improve on that, guys, because you guys mean the world to us. Yeah. And, and like I said, we, we didn't bring this up. This was actually a couple of weeks ago. But this is the review that we got that honestly... It made me, even though I didn't say this to Tracy, it made me think of, honestly about just not doing the show anymore. Because, you know, we we try to be as good a people as we can, and we're not perfect by any means. But I get tired of Tracy being attacked. I mean, I understand that people don't always like her, or they don't always like me, or they don't like her voice. or that. I understand all that. But to personally attack this review, let me just tell you what this says. And like I said, we didn't post this in the, in because we just felt like that we do that too much. This said, "Good show if Tracy is muted. This might be a good show if Tracy shut her mouth. She's not funny, cute, or insightful at all. She's an annoying distraction, and I cannot take it anymore." Bye. Cool. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality of it is. We we can't stop reading reviews. That's just the way it is. You're you're gonna read them, but that one had an effect on her, and the other ones did do too, but not like this one did. And you know, I can only stand by for so long and ignore something like that. And it's just uh, it's 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 sad because I know where her heart is. And I know sometimes she says stuff that some people might roll their eyes or laugh, but it's all in good fun. For somebody to just act like that this is so life and death that they've got to take to their keyboard and tell somebody to shut their mouth and they're not funny and they're not insightful, I I, I feel sorry for you. If you're that person who's probably not listening, but if you're that type of person who has nothing better to do with your time than to go and leave reviews like that, to where it's just a physical attack on somebody, you know, you're just hurting people for no reason but to make yourself feel better. And I feel sorry for you. So that's what we'll end on that. We love you guys, and I hope you all have a blessed week.